Hello, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. Uh, it is indeed Teos talking to you and not Sean Merwin because uh, uh, it's not quite tragic news, but Sean Merwin has been kidnapped by a phase spider, is my understanding, uh, after speaking to the local sages, and he's been dragged into the ethereal plane. But the really good news is that I have called for aid, and uh, answering that call is a master of the ethereal plane and many other important topics, Ajit George. Ajit, welcome. Hi, Tejas. It's nice to meet you and nice to be here. I don't know if I'm going to be capable of saving Sean, but I will do my best to help you out. Well, that's really our secondary goal. So <laughs> as long as we get to talk through journeys through the Radiant Citadel, you know, then then we'll try to help and see if we can save <laughs> Sean and retrieve him for the next episode. Uh, darn face spiders. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> How are you doing these days? I'm pretty good. Um, excited to talk about the book. It's, it's been a lot of great buzz, and um, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we are really glad to have you here. In fact, it was Sean that, that, that said, wait, you know what you should do while I'm gone next week? Uh, I mean, captured by face spiders. Um, he, he, he was like, yeah, talk to Ajit. Um, and in fact, your name has been coming up a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people are hearing about you because of the, the uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel book. But also a number of creators have also been mentioning you because you, I think, really have been involved in the space recently in a number of ways. And I think people may not know a whole lot about you yet. Um, and one area where you focus, maybe it's your main focus, is on Shanti Bhavan, a boarding school in India where you create opportunities uh, for children from poor families. The villages surrounding the school are then served by the Baldev Center, which is a medical and community center that you and your family helped found. And then you've got writing for Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And now you've led Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, which releases June 21st. Help us understand how these two sides of you come together and what led to them being, uh, <laughs> being here. Yeah, I, I know it seems a little different. Um the nonprofit side and the gaming side. Um, but in many ways, they're, they're really synergetic. Uh, I, I did go, a, you know, I took, um, uh, in my early 20s, I took a, a class at Clear and West for uh, science fiction fantasy writing. And I thought that was the direction I was going to go in, into until, um, you know, I really switched careers and went into nonprofit. Um, but in many ways, my nonprofit work informs my gaming work and vice versa. Uh, my work in India is not only with the poor, but with um, a historically discriminated part of the community, the Dalit caste, or the, they're known as the untouchables. Um, and, and they are both socio, socially, socially and economically deprived and discriminated against. And our work is to, to break that down and to, um, to unweave that, that social discrimination and that economic uh, deprivation and give them uh, full-fledged opportunities to be part of um, larger society. And, you know, I'm a lifelong gamer, but in the last 10 years, I have spent a lot of time um, focused on how to get more people of color into games, not simply represented on the page, but represented as the writers who are creating those characters and those storylines and those settings. And just even in leadership positions as well, who, who greenlits a project, right? Who, who, who says... We're going to go forward with this and who leads those projects? Um, those are questions I've been thinking about a lot for about a decade. And, and that really is informed by my nonprofit work. They're, they're very synergetic in that regard. 
And similarly, my nonprofit work has been informed by my role playing. Um, I've been able to teach kids in, in various different social subjects um, by using games as a tool, a teaching tool, um, a, a tool that maybe creates empathy um, and, uh, you know, connection between, uh, uh, you know, some of the kids. So they really feed into each other. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, I'm a consultant and my... Um... It's surprising how often the two things relate to one another. Um, so um, what aspects, how, let, let's say, how did you get started in RPGs uh, and games and novels? Uh, was this something that you were able to do as a young kid? How, how has this grown for you, that interest in the, in the gaming hobby specifically? Yeah, um, I'm a lifelong gamer. Um, you know, I keep on trying to remember exactly when I got my first, like, basic red box set. I think it was first or second grade. Uh, but high school was really when I started playing D&D heavily. And, and it was an important part of a period of time when I was very lonely and uh, felt very isolated from, um, you know, a school that was, was predominantly white and wealthy. And, and I felt very much an outsider in that. And games and D&D were really important to me um, in finding a space for myself. Yeah. Yeah, I um, understand. Yeah, I think writing, you know, uh, books or, or writing games did not feel doable for me. And, and I, as I thought about a lot about why that's the case, um, I really thought probably in my, uh, my late teens, early 20s, that um, games and books were written by people who looked different than me. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is to say, I, I thought it was really um, a field that, you know, white people did. Um, and um, I, I, the only way to put it is I just thought I was not the person that was supposed to be doing these things. Uh, nobody necessarily told me that. It was simply that, like, all of the people that I admired or all the people that I saw doing work in that field were uh, white people, usually white men. And so I think I gave up on myself um, and my ambitions very quickly because I didn't see role models in the field. Um, that made me think it was doable for me. Yeah. I came to write for games um, through, uh, you know, a very strange kind of turn of, turn of events. Um, I went to Gen Con, I think this was Gen Con 2013, um, or 2012, uh, 2012, I think, was when I went for the first time. And I was stunned uh, by what I saw is, you know, a disparity of um, who went to the con hmm. and, um, you know, kind of that racial demographic. Uh, and I wrote about how I thought the con was, you know, I loved it. It was a great experience, but I thought it was mostly um, mostly a white con. And I wrote about it in, in the now defunct Google Plus uh, social network. I, I don't know if you ever used it, but yep, yep. it's been a great, uh, a great outlet for indie gamers to kind of talk with themselves. Yeah. And um, I expected to, to not really get any traction about my thoughts around it. But, but surprisingly, a lot of indie gamers um, really glommed on and listened to what I had to say and, and encouraged me to speak more about that. And in the process, a, a larger conversation started in Google Plus around, um, you know, people of color in games, what our role is, um, us writing for games, um, and so on. And that's when I... Uh, got my first invitation to write for a game. Actually, I was uh, dating my wife, Whitney uh, Bacon, uh, Whitney Strix Bacon, and 
she got the invite first, <laughs> which is fair, because <laughs> uh, she was, you know, she's a little bit more professional. But it was her first shot writing for games. And then um, I got an invite right after her uh, for the same game. And um, I was scared as hell. And I was, it was terrible in terms of like my process was just so self destructive because I didn't believe I could do it. And I was kind of wow. constantly fretting about the work. Uh, yeah. But I finished it. And it, what it was was a city guide to Bangalore, um, an urban, um, urban fantasy city guide to Bangalore. And writing that was incredibly powerful. And it was, you know, in the, in the small circles that it was, you know, circulated, it was well received. And that opened the door for more work. But it also opened the door internally to my belief that I could do it. And maybe games writing was okay and was something that I and other people like me could do. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, being uh, Colombian-American uh, and growing up, my experience playing was in Colombia. Um, I have a, 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 and I've talked about this on the show before, with sort of a strange relationship where a lot of times it just, I just felt white to people. And so in that way, it was all very easy. Um, but then also I would be looking at the space, trying to find others like me. And, and it's interesting that, as I look at the history of the game, there there is a fair bit of diversity in it, but it's it's kind of concealed, um, though it does not involve India. And so, for sure, you know, I can I can imagine like I've been able to see a few Latinos here and there, right? Uh, and we can see women, and but but finding somebody uh, that's Asian, that you know, someone from India, that, that it, it's been something that just hasn't been seen, and and and, and similarly finding people who are black who've, you know, written for the game in, in significant ways is hard to find. Um, and I think only now am I understanding how important that is uh, for me and, and for the community. Um, it, it's unbelievable how impactful it can be to see somebody uh, in charge of a project somebody who's involved in a project at any capacity it can be editor, developer, writer, any of it. Right. Yeah. I, I, you're, you're right. I did a little research before I started, um, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft just to see like, you know, had there been other Indians writing for, for, for D and D and, um, what had they written? And I couldn't, I couldn't find any. Yeah. Um, and, the same I couldn't find from all, from various different demographics. The, the one was, I think, Latinos. I did see a, a few Latinos uh, mm -hmm. for D&D. And, you know, it just made me sad. You know, it, 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 South Asians make up more than one-sixth of the world's population. It's a huge, yeah. you know, India alone is 1.3 billion. You add Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, so on, Nepal. You're, you're getting a huge chunk of the population in there. If we say that D&D is for everyone, when we say D&D is a global game, um, then it really should be represented in the people that write the yeah. game um, and the characters and settings and myths and cultures and magic that is represented in that game. Um, and so there's an opportunity, and I, you know, I'm really grateful to the D&D studio, the design studio, for uh, embracing um, uh, my ideas and, and really wanting to uh, move the game forward and to embrace what it was really a global perspective. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, I, I think we are entering a period of time for the game where there are going to be some really fascinating conversations and adjustments taking place in order for D&D to be what it wants to be, which is to be a truly you know, global brand, a game that, that can be identified with 
um, at all levels. That that's not going to happen by having you know what we see even in the D and D cartoon, which has a, a little bit you know it has some women and it has a black woman and so on. But but uh, that level of of sort of whiteness to its writing to its approach is is not going to register fully internationally, even though I did see the D&D cartoon when I was in Colombia and, and I have friends who saw it in Brazil and so on. Um, you know, we, we want to see that speak to us uh, with its stories, right? With its, uh, with its narrative. Yeah. I, I think there's just a very different feeling um, when you know that the writers have written uh, for you from their own experiences that connect to yours. It's often how I, um, sometimes get challenged by, um, you know, I was born and brought up in America. Um, so I am American by birth, Indian by ethnic heritage, but I grew up in a, a relatively conservative Indian family. Um, they've gotten more progressive and more, more relaxed <laughs> over the years, but I was the first child born in America. And so they kind of try to rec- recreate India in, in America. I'm sure you have a little sense of how that is, right? Or your parents are like, I got to hold on to okay. you know, what, what it was in the old country, right? Um, so I had a bit of that going on. And part of the side effect is that I didn't connect with a lot of American cultural touchstones. And that was in, you know, humor or, or TV shows or, or, you know, sometimes music or sometimes movies. But there's just a lot of it that was very much not created by anyone like me for anyone like me. Um, and that was very hard for me to find a connection. Um, I can, you can say that, you know, art sometimes is universal, but, but a lot of it is really, um, you know, specifically for within a certain context, a certain time period, uh, a certain culture, a certain ethos, they all kind of, they're, they're vibing off of um, those, those, those elements. And, if you're outside of those elements, you can be alienated. You can be pushed yeah. out, and you don't find something to hold on to that means something to you. Um, and so, um, you're right. If we are, if D and D is to become that global game, we need more stories to be told by more storytellers, uh, different types. So this is a great gateway to talking about Radiant Citadel. But before we do that, uh, so as you mentioned, you're married to Whitney Strix Beltan. And she's another highly uh, creative and accomplished creator, works on video games, game design, like Bluebeard's Bride RPG, much more, some D&D work. Um, what is it like to be in a household where the two of you can just bounce ideas back and forth? That must be great. <laughs> it is. It's, it's pretty awesome. She's, um, she's enormously creative um, and has had a very successful games career um, very quickly. Um, Bluebird's Bride, of course, did really, really well um, and won a bunch of awards. And then in video games, she's done really well, too. Hala Vista uh, won a bunch of awards, too. And she's been kind of crushing it. She's working, um, she worked on Journeys to the Radiant Citadel as a consultant, uh, worked on Van Richten's, and now she's on a, a AAA D&D game uh, for, um, for, for Wizards of the Coast, which, which is fun and exciting. Yeah. I think particularly because we are both working on D&D for me, angles it is interesting to have conversations as we're in the creative process um, and to share ideas and to do check-ins with each other but it is really fun to have a partner who you can can speak to on so many sides of your personality um, your your creative expression um, your 
you know, your hopes into aspirations that she just fundamentally gets what I am trying to do and vice versa. Um, at, a, at a base level, it is very supportive. It's very supportive and it's just, it's wonderful to have a creative partner because that also is somebody who can really check you out. You're like, oh, is that, is, you go in the right direction there. How about this, this, and this? She is certainly, you know, you, you talk about, you know, writers often talk about their first reader and the first reader is usually their partner and their spouse. Certainly my first reader is. And um, she's the first one who will take a look at it. And if she grudgingly says it, it's pretty good, I, I know I have passed a high bar, uh, which, is, great. which is about as good as it gets with her in terms of, you know, giving a thumbs up. It's like, okay, that's it's, tough. Pretty, it's, wow. it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah she's, she's a tough critic. <laughs> Uh, that, that's wonderful. Uh, that, that's fantastic. That's, I, I'm sure a lot of people would like to have that. And, and it, it, I'm sure means a lot, too, that you both can discuss your backgrounds and, and aspirations for diversity and, and see, you know, speak on that level, which is great. Yeah, she's biracial Mexican and has strong connections to, to, to um, you know, her Mexican heritage and Latin America and, and the has been striving in similar ways to seeing more of that in games. So Fantastic. These are conversations we're always having now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Um, so, okay, so let's let's switch a little bit um, to Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. Uh, we've talked about it, Sean and I, on the show. Um, and But I, but I want to kind of take another cut at it with your help since, since you were in charge of this project, which is so exciting. Um, so Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, at first glance, when we first heard about it, probably most of us thought, oh, okay, this is sort of like Candlekeep Mysteries. We've got 13 short standalone adventures. But then as news kind of kept coming out, we realized, okay, you know, there, there's a lot more to this. Uh, it takes us to a new location, not an established one, located in the ethereal plane. And that's a location that has not seen a lot of attention. I mean, arguably, there was a source book in, for Planescape in second edition. Um, but but it's received very little treatment, and, and this Radiant Citadel is is now a very specific type of crossroads. It's not like Sigil, uh, where you can have endless doors. Um, how did these ideas start forming together? Did this initially start with you? Did it start with the Wizards team? And how did it kind of develop to revolve around these specific transit conquer jewels and so on? Yeah, um, the book concept. So. Um... The, the Wizards team has been incredibly supportive in, in allowing me enormous freedom and creative uh, energy. And that's been, that's been powerful and really kind of amazing. Um, yeah. the, the, the design of the book came from Ben Brickton's. Actually, I really liked the structure of the domains and wanting, you know, my goal was to have um, each of the locations have, you know, several pages around a domain and, then we would fill it in with more, right? And it was it was Jeremy Crawford and um, Wes Snyder who pushed back on that structure and said, "Hey, let's flip this." Because I actually didn't know when when I was pitching this, I didn't know Candlekeep Mysteries existed, right? I, I was working on Van Richten's, did uh -huh. not know about Candlekeep Mysteries. Uh, they told me at that point, they kind of like walked me through it. They're like, "Hey, this other book is is in process, and here's what's going to happen with that." I was like, "Oh, okay, that makes some sense." And they said, "Let's do that," which is the the, um, the best way in their mind for new players to understand a new culture is to take them through a story in that culture. And the adventure structure is the best way to, you know, to, to tell that story. And that made a lot of sense to me. So we kind of flipped the script, um, you know, and that 
the adventures are uh, start off, you know, take you through it. And then there's a gazetteer for each location that expands that location, kind of like the Domains of Red. So you've got a few pages on uh, each of the location expands further from the information that you get in, in the adventure. So you will get quite a bit. Like, you'll understand, I think, the culture and the location, the cities. Sometimes they're cities, sometimes they're city-states, sometimes they're empires. You will get a lot more from that. Um, and there are 16 new locations. You're right. Everything in here is brand new to D&D. And I think that's another exciting part wow. is that far as I understand, in terms of like non-linked properties, not magic or, you know, something like that, this is the first time that it is brand new 5e material for 5e in, in that context. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really thrilling, to be honest. <laughs> so so that, 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 that was really exciting to kind of be able to work uh, in that direction. But it was inspired by my work on Ben Richtens and kind of thinking about that structure and why I liked it. And then um, you know, Jeremy and Wes kind of urged me to like look at Kendallcave and think about it from that direction. So it's a hybrid of the two in my mind. That's cool. Where did this specific concept of the uh, Concord jewels these that allow transit to these specific locations? How did that come together? Well, well you know, all of it—the the, Rainy Citadel and the Concord jewels—came uh, out of the fifteen locations as they, the the founding civilizations as they were being created. Um, you know, the writers had their uh, parameters and their directions given to them first, and they did a couple rounds of pitches, um, and then we finally picked it, the ones that we wanted for each of them to do, and they built out word from it. While they were working, I was watching um, all of their drafts, their pitches, just taking on all that material, um, and I knew I, we wanted a linked, you know, central location that would be um, a hub that would you know, potentially adventures would go from there to each of these adventures uh, and, and tell this, you know, go through the stories and then maybe return back to the, the hub and then go to the next story and so on. But it took me a while of gestating and reading and thinking about reoccurring themes, um, goals that I wanted for the book. Um, I had set a bunch of different goals for the book, uh, parameters at least. It said, hey, you can do this, but not this. You can do this, but not this. Um, and, and kind of working with them and thinking about that. And, and it really came out of reading their material um, that I built the Radiant Citadel and, and the, the Dawn Incarnates and then the Concord Jewels. Um, and in many ways, that speaks to the Radiant Citadel itself because the Radiant Citadel was founded by the 27 founding cultures. And so uh, it doesn't come first. Uh, the founding cultures come first. And in this way, the, the Radiant Citadel itself was written after the founding cultures were written. So I thought that was poetic and, and appropriate. Yeah, it, it was it was built um, in response uh, to theirs, and, and so you can really see it in the DNA. I think um, you in rereads, especially if you read the whole book through and then you reread it again, you're like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. I see what he's doing with this. I see why these tie in there. Some of it's very subtle, uh, but some of it's very clearly like, oh yeah, this is very much from this. Um, so that, that's where that that was built out. Everything within the Radiant Citadel. I'd like to think everything in the Radiant Citadel makes logical sense. Um, either there's an internal logic to it. Um, I, you know, I, you, you describe that, how, it, you know, it's not like Sigil, and, and I love Sigil, um, you know, big Planescape uh, fan uh, back in the day. But one of the things is if you stare too long at, at, at Sigil, it starts to fall apart. It's sort yeah. of like this great abstractist painting that is just wonderful. Like, just, you just take it for what it is, but it's like, 
that the logic doesn't really hold up if you if you stare at it too long, right? And like this, how does the city exist? How, do, how does everything work? Well, magic, right? That is basically the only way it does not self-destruct um, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Radiant Citadel, much, um, I'd like to think, is much more internally coherent. Um, and there's a reason for everything that happens within it. And then everything makes sense. And it ties to every other part of the book. And, and even further, and I can't go into too much more detail, but be sure. honest, um, it does follow a thread or through line that has been coming up in, in books and I think is leading in a certain direction downwards. Um, and I I have some familiarity with that. And so I, I, it speaks to that kind of forward move, movement that I see, you know, future books or future material um, claim to. And so everything in there has a reason for why it is. And it's not just like, this is going to be a cool thing. It's, it's like, this is a cool thing. And also there's, there's an internal logic. There's a certain reason for it. Um, and that makes me really happy because I'm happy. My brain works in that way. It's like, <laughs> it does not work. If it does not make sense, yeah. I can't put it in there. I'm just not going to put the cool thing in there for the cool thing's sake. Yeah. Um, I, I, everything has to work in my own weird internal logic. Yeah. That makes sense. And was that a hard thing to achieve like did you have to hack away at it for quite some time to get it all to yeah that is exactly it you know Stephen King talks about uh writing and unwriting and I've read that book a few times I like it I you know I also think it's only Stephen King can do this process but but there is one line that is sometimes interesting I don't necessarily agree with it but it's also kind of interesting he says for him writing is like um, digging up a fossil, right? And then he's just chipping away at it and then he kind of finds it, the pieces and he's slowly chipping away at it. All right, kind of kind of the same way in that like mm-hmm. I knew I knew the pieces were there and I just needed to keep on chipping away at it. And I kept on having to dig at it. And I kept on having to like ask myself questions as to why that was there and what was going on with that. And how does it link? And I would look, I would reference like some of the earlier 5e books and that like was, was talking about this through line and then I would I would think about what I knew about where the things are going in the future. Things might change in the future, but where I, I understood things were going in the future, um, and and kind of you know worked at it. And so there was my writing process is quite slow. I don't usually take a lot of writing projects, um, mostly because it is so slow. And I am a bit of a perfectionist, and I really I get very frustrated if my work does not you know hit a certain mark. So um, I worked on this for months. I mean my my. My sections are relatively small compared. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I have to take a look at the, the page counts again, but it's not like a giant chunk of the book. Um, mm-hmm. It's a portion of the book, but it did take a, quite a while and multiple drafts as I, um, you know, slowly worked every piece together. <laughs> but it all it all comes together, um, you know, coherently, and it, it tells the story in a very specific way, and I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Well, that speaks to me. I, I'm secretly happy whenever someone tells me they're a slow, uh, overly precise, perfectionist <laughs> writer, because that's the way I am. And I marvel at my friends who can just like, I'll work with them, collaborate on a project, and then just send something the same day. And it's really good. I'm like, how do you do that so quickly? Yeah, that, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I cannot do that. I'm, I'm a slow writer. Yeah, my secret power is dedication and time and, and, and endless refinement. I, I think you should. I think you should uh, preach that to, 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 the, to the heavens. I think more people need to hear that. Yeah, I think there's yeah. a there's a sense that like your first draft has to be perfect. And that, um, I remember reading an interview with um, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Philip Roth and him talking about you know 
said my first, I, I would I compare my first draft drafts to your first drafts and, and promise you mine's garbage in comparison. They're always the worst. And he's like, I spent hundreds of pages and I cut most of them. And then I finally find something that works and I start from there. Um, mine are similarly, my first drafts are usually miserable and, and it takes a long time before I get to, to a final draft that makes me really happy. Yeah. Now, when you're working, uh, when you were working on this, did you draw from Indian mythology for parts of the book? You know, so so the Rain of Citadel is is has to has to do something that's quite challenging, which is to say it has to represent uh, at least the 15 cultures that are the present in the book, and at least there might be others out there because it's 27 that built. So, by and large, no. The the only places where my section, um, you know, really touches on Indian culture. There's a couple of places, but the most obvious one that I've talked about so far is the Indian rock uh, architecture. That the, the, the buildings are carved directly out of and into the fossil uh, of a creature that wrapped itself around the rural diamond um, in its dying moments. Um, and um, that, that, that definitely speaks, obviously, to, to my own experiences and my own background. I love Indian rock art architecture i've seen a lot of it in india and, and it's always incredibly moving and powerful and uh, I, I would imagine what it must be to live in these buildings and um and so of course that's when i had an opportunity to write something about people living in those buildings that's what i guess I, yeah, that's, I awesome. yeah. that's wonderful i i love seeing whenever i travel i i uh i write end up writing down so many great ideas because the world is just full of inspiration. And and one of my favorite things, I, I have uh, an Indian co-worker at a project that would always tell me about Indian mythology because he, he, he didn't really understand this D&D thing that I was into um, <laughs> because they all knew at the project that, that I did this sort of writing on the side. But he would say, like, well, since you like great stories, you know, yeah. here are these stories. and Oh, they're wonderful. Yeah, you know, I, I think about it every once in a while. And, I, you know, the stuff that I've done for D&D so far does not draw, draw from Indian mythology. And part of the reason why that is I'm, I'm a little weary because Indian mythology also connects so deeply to Indian, to Hindu religion. Mm. And so um, I'm, I'm cautious about misstepping or, or yeah. moving in a direction that I find, um, you know, could be problematic. The other part of it is um, not in the Western context, but certainly in the Indian context, Indian mythology has been used heavily for storytelling for so long. And so while I love it, I also worry of it being a trap um, that al- does not allow uh, new writers to create a freedom to kind of push out of, uh, you know, stories that have been told for, for hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, you know, some of those texts have been really built over hundreds of years and retelling and retelling and retelling. And so there's a bit of an iconoclast to me that sure. is like, I want to do my own thing. Like, I, I don't mind, like, drawing just a little bit of inspiration, but I don't want to reinvent yeah. the wheel yet again in a different context for D&D, right? So I have not really used Indian <laughs> mythology in anything I've done. That, those are the reasons for it. Yeah. Now, but no knocking thing. anybody, any Indian writer that comes sure. after me that wants to do it. That's your thing? Cool. Awesome. Go do your thing. Yeah. Now, one thing you did do is you worked really hard on the concept of the Radiant Citadel as a hub, and, and you say it asks questions about society and community. And I find that really fascinating because it can be really hard as a writer to try to have a setting tell us things. And so how did you go about that? Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll give you one piece of information I haven't put out there 
probably shouldn't do more than that, but this is the one piece of information I'll put out there is um, there is the, the speaker for the speakers for the ancestors and they're the governing body for the Reagan um, and they're, they're made up of representatives of each of the founding cultures and they have some interesting powers, but one of their powers uh, is the ability to kind of basically shut down everything that's <laughs> working on the Radiant Citadel. Like it's sort of their ultimate veto power. Um, all, all decisions are made democratically uh, by majority vote, right? And so, um, you know, you, you vote on laws and, and taxes and, and, you know, decide to, to intervene in a problem or not and so on and so forth. But it's by majority. Um, but if you're not happy with these decisions for some reason or the other, you can just decide to veto, and that veto comes in the most extreme possible way, which is the shutting down of all power um, in the uh, in the Radiant Citadel, and everything, all, all things will stop to function in the Radiant Citadel, which means people could die, the entire Citadel could die. Wow. What am I doing with that, right? Well, uh, that's my way of talking about, um, you know, we could talk, we could say the U.S. Congress, we could take a, a other, parliament, other parliamentary bodies, but soon the U.S. Congress. We in my feeling with the U.S. Congress, especially in the last few decades, have gotten to the point where it becomes harder and harder to pass legislation we as a society generally need. And, and a few individuals can basically block that, right? And, and we're seeing that very much in the Senate, um, even though the Democrats have control of the Senate, um, they're, they're still locked out of really important climate legislation and um, election laws and so on. And a couple of people are blocking that. Um, and so the speakers for the answers is my discussion of that. But what I also add there is, um, by and large, because this veto power is so destructive, it's almost never used. And in fact, what they do is they, after months or weeks and months of negotiation, they come to compromises, they come to um, a, 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 you know, a, a, a way forward that appeases everyone. And that's my way of saying that they have the same power as Congress, right? In a very very black and white way, because I think a lot of people don't quite understand how powerful Congress is and how powerful a couple people are in stopping the process. Um, this is my way of saying they have the same power, but their choices are different, that they've decided that it is more important for the welfare of the entire society and, and their people to come to compromises and negotiate forward. And, and that's how they do it. And I don't leave any right or wrong. I, I just want to say this is how things function. Yeah. And the DM can choose. Actually, okay, maybe one of the speaker of the ancestors decided to veto on a very key thing and the whole city falls apart. Or maybe they compromise in a way they shouldn't compromise and they make a really bad decision, right? And so this is my way of having asking questions about the functioning of a society or functioning of a governmental body in a society. And there's a bunch more questions like that um, or, 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 you know, pieces of that. Here, here's another example. This is not, you know, this is not... Um, this is not the biggest deal, but it's just a way of asking a question. Um, the Concord Jewels can find um, the the Concord Jewels are linked to the people of of the founding uh, civilization. So wherever those people are, even if they moved locations, if they're in the material plane, the Concord Jewel will recalibrate and teleport immediately. You know, um, plane shift immediately to them, and you know can resume um, you know trade. And passage between the, the Radiant Citadel and the founding uh, civilization's new location. So wherever they go, they can be found, as long as they're in the material plane. If they're off the material plane, if that civilization's moved off, they can't find them, which could be one of the reasons why some of those 12 are missing. Yeah. Great. That's interesting, right? So then you're, what, what that is saying is that's a commentary that um, 
a civilization it's, is the people, not the land. Okay, well, the dawn incarnates are almost a contradiction because the dawn incarnates say they are made of the spirits of the people, but also the spirits of the land. And it, they're a combination of both. Um, each of those, those dawn incarnates are pieces of spirits of both, right? So what is my argument then? Are, are, is a people the, the, just the people, the human beings that make it up? Or is a people both the, the land that live upon that is ancestrally theirs, as well as the people who live upon it. And I don't give a resolution. There is actually a tension between these two different positions. That was a very intentional piece of writing. Um, and I think that, once again, these are subtle questions, but certainly they speak to questions that we are asking ourselves today, right? Um, yeah. Is the land, you know, what is the person's land if they have been pushed off that land? Is, is it theirs? Is it ancestrally theirs? Does it have a religious significance, historical significance? Um, so this is a way of, yeah. I think, being able to ask really interesting questions about a society, people, community, the values we live by, what we find important. There's a ton more of that in the Raven Citadel, and there's a ton more of that in each of the different pieces. Absolutely. Does that help well, answer that question? Yeah, yeah. And I find it fascinating because I think one of the things I'm often looking at as a, as a creator is how can we do different things with the same medium of, you know, source book, adventures, monsters, and, and, and it's interesting because what you're describing are the kinds of things that I love about great sci-fi novels, but it can be hard to go from the sci-fi novel that we read that really can do that for us. And then the adventure where the adventure is often like, well, and protect this thing or go explore this ruin. But, but the, the weaving of those larger themes and, and prompting those big questions can be great play and can be so good psychologically for everybody to, to work through with DM and players. And it's a fascinating way to do it because it's not just reading the novel. It's, it's you're integrating with that. Right. Sure. Yeah. I think in both cases, these are actively like if a people, if, if a founding civilization decides to physically move, that's an active move and the Concord jewel will then have to recalibrate. And then at least the players at the table, hopefully have a couple minute conversation about like, why does that happen? Like, that's really weird. Yeah. But why are the Dawn Incarnates still, like, created from the, the, the spirits of the land? Um, I can see an, a, a, a place where one of the Dawn Incarnates, like, of Akaran Sangai, like, for instance, they change locations for some reason. Or God's Breath is actually a perfect example because God's Breath's people did get dislocated. Uh, going, hey, I want you to find the original land my people came from and get them back there or find a real link, right? That's a, then, then, then there's a question for the players. Oh, they want us to find the original land. Does that mean the land's more important than the people? Or what, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? And I hope it provokes uh, conversations at the table. And I hope it asks yeah. interesting questions at the table. And I think there's ways to gamify it. Um, yeah. At least I hope we've, we've achieved some of that there through the text. That's great. Well, it's, it's really good. It reminds me of one of the things that I really love about Eberron, which honestly really only clicked for me when I spoke to Keith Baker and and he, uh, perhaps also because he writes novels, he, he has a number of elements in that world, and I think the other authors that have worked on it, that are those kinds of questions, like what is Warforged, right? And, it, and a Warforged is not just an, a machine like like a lot of probably players think about it. it, it's, it it's a much richer topic than that as to what they are and what their place is, um, what they want it to be. 
Um, yeah. So I, I love I love questions like that, and I love to see how different designers tackle it. So that makes me super excited for Radiant Citadel to see how people told these stories. And yeah, I I I think you'll see a lot of it within the Radiant Citadel. I thought very, you know, for instance, the Radiant Citadel. So there's another part where the Radiant Citadel is, um, the Radiant Citadel is mostly vegetarian, right? Uh, it, it, the food that eaten there is mostly vegetarian. That's a very practical and pragmatic uh, issue because they're in the deep ethereal plane. Uh, getting, you know, meat products there, because it, it's, it's very rich in terms of, like, natural growth. It's a very green space. A lot of, like, plants and, and um, you know, vegetables grow out of uh, the, the fossil, but uh, it just doesn't have enough space for, like, you know, a lot of animal products. And so it would be very expensive to constantly ship them for the, the Concord, you know, jewels over there. And that, that's another conversation about where does the food come from? How far does it take to get there? Uh, what is the cost involved in that? Um, you know, and, and asking some interesting questions there, right? And so these are all that's these are cool. all ways to hopefully jog people to think about the society we live in, the choices we make. Um, you know, are these to inspect them? Um, but at the end of the day, it's also just easily played as a game without you know you don't need to think about these questions to be the ones. Sure, sure. That's that's the best. It, it, it lets everybody uh, interact with it as they want, and they can pick it up if they want to and, and dwell on it. I, I like that a lot. Um, you you've spoken in in a couple of the interviews about how the Radiant Citadel is solar punk. Um, it's it's not, and, and I feel like almost every D and D anything recently has been in a world where everything is dark. <laughs> <laughs> So what was what was that about? Is is that uh, a, a conscious desire to say, hey, the world could be like this? What what are you doing with with uh, with how you're uh, stepping away from dark is the coolest thing ever? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's well. There are actually I think two separate questions with that. Um, first is just the color in the book. Um, once you get the book, uh, this you will be able to flip through it and see. Uh, the book is right here. I mean, no pun intended. It is just, just glowing with color. And that was me um, talking with Wes and talking with Emmy Tanji and Kate Irwin and saying, hey, um, Indian art is very bright. <laughs> Latin American art is very bright. Uh, African art is very bright. You know, the cultures we're drawing from, by and large, their art is uses the full color palette. And that's what I want to see represented in the art. Um, and, and let's take it from that direction. And you'll see it. It, it is much awesome. brighter um, and, and radiantly so. Uh, true to the art styles, I think, in many ways of uh, the cultures they come from. And so that's really exciting. Um, I, I also agree with you that, like, uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of past 5e books have been, um, you know, not maybe utilizing the full color palette and, and on some level, I, like it, sometimes it can be it can be appropriate. Like like a Ravenloft book can be very appropriate that, that those dark tones. But other times, I feel like it, it misses the the richness of what color has to offer. And I don't even think it's D and D's fault. I think there's just actually the media currently in today has been in that trending in that direction. Um, and I hope we move away from that because um, yeah. I think it's it's good in in very specific contexts, but not overused, which is right. Maybe now. not for Superman. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Maybe not for Superman. Definitely. Yeah. Um, with regards to solar punk, that's really born out of the current era and 
I think there's two crossroads. I, I, I read uh, an, a critic kind of saying there, there are art that's coming out that says like one of two things. One, one is it was defeatist and saying the world's ending, everything's terrible. We're polarized in, in these two camps and there's no possible way forward. And, and it's uh, apocalyptic kind of in its thinking. And um, that, that really bothers me. And, and it, it, it worries me a lot if that's the kind of thinking that we're going on. The second uh, group is the ones who feel like there's a way forward, but we've got to fight for it. Um, and solar punk, hope punk is hope punk is more of that fight. Um, but solar punk is more like maybe past the fight and the reimagining of a victory in that fight. And so I, I think the radiant citadel physically as a location, it, when you read through it, it should strike you as solar punk. It's, uh, post the battle and um, a certain level of victory has been achieved and it is a much more environmentally sound, uh, sustainable um, location, which is peaceful by and large. Um, and you can make an argument of slightly utopian, but not without its own challenges and difficulties. They're just not simply difficulties that you hit with a sword, right? You're, you're not going to win every problem in the Radiant Citadel by beating it with a stick. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are much more nuanced and complex things going on in the Radiant Citadel. Legitimately complex challenges. And the two key NPCs in there, you should definitely read the last line for both of them because they speak to like the hardships both of those key NPCs are dealing with. Um, but by and large, the, the Radiant Citadel is, is doing relatively well. Um, but there's a lot of outward pointing like, oh, if you want to go to adventure, there's like 20, 30, 50, 100 different options for outward adventures. It is really a story generator of a location. Uh, the rest of the book is Hope Punk, and the rest of the book is Hope Punk because I think the fight is still happening in those pages. Um, a lot of those locations are having a lot of different challenges, a lot of different, um, you know, dangers and uh, they're on the, you know, they're on the cusp of going in the wrong direction, or maybe they're already sailed in the wrong direction. But there's a fundamental underlying sense of hope. There's a, there's a possibility that things could be better if we're willing to fight for it. And I think the book as a whole is, a, is in the genre of hope punk, which is to say, um, the fight is worth having. Um, the, the the fight for something better is possible, and we should try. Yeah. And I think that's what we're trying to say with a large. Ah, it's wonderful. Uh, I love it. And, and this uh, is the perfect segue to um, where I've seen you on Twitter share that you've been working to help up and coming designers reach their potential. Uh, and then for companies in the role playing game space to be a part of this. And can you maybe first talk about the need for why? Why is this important? Why is it necessary? Um, the games industry uh, is has not been, um, you know, very diverse in terms of uh, the people that are in in those companies or in leadership positions for many years. Um, that I think is less a product of malice and more the product of familiarity. Um, there's an interesting. There's been a few interesting studies saying that most white people have like 74 white friends for every like brown friend that they have. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the opposite is that, you know, brown and black people have a lot of brown and black friends and then a lot of white friends, a bit of mix. Um, if 74 of your friends, and that sat might be slightly wrong, but I believe that's what it is. 
So you've got 74 white friends and you only got one brown friend. You're going to probably hire, you know, and, and, and the other stat that I read, which, which was really interesting, is most hires are by people that you know within your social circles. That Like a lot of it is by internal reference of some sort of you. Yeah. Sure. Right. So if you combine the two things is most hires are internal reference. Uh, most white people only have white friends. You realize that most of these companies are going to be white. And that's not by malice, but that is by inertia um, and the lack of like, trying to break that the desire, the understanding of this being a problem, the desire to take action to address this problem. Um, and so myself and my wife decided we would tackle this. And this is once again, born out of my work from Shanti Bhavan. And I, I thought about our challenges in getting underprivileged kids into white collar professional jobs and uh, income earning jobs that allowed them to get out of poverty. And I looked at that work and what we were doing there. And I thought maybe there's some things we could apply from there into this book. And so, um, been working at this for several years, kind of quietly, because uh, I just sort of prefer working under the radar. I, you know, sometimes sure. feel like, where, where did where did he come from, and what is he doing? And like, actually, I've been doing this for a while, but <laughs> not necessarily trumpeting on Twitter or, or talking yeah. about it in news articles. It's just it's not my style, um, and uh, have seen a ton of ton of results. Um, and the biggest section of this is two things. One is to find up and coming. Um, Usually I work with uh, people of color, uh, though we'll work with anyone from a marginalized community or underrepresented community in games, um, because I just want to try to get the games industry to be more uh, equitable in their hiring. And I will pair them with uh, professionals, industry veterans, who are willing to do training with them, not just mentoring, but actually training with them on adventure design, on editing and writing, on art, um, on project management, all the different components, whatever their interests are. And um, to prepare them for full-time jobs in the games industry or um, at least a successful contract to work in the industry. And um, not to toot our horn, but we've been vastly successful um, and, and turned out really well. You know, just as Armand is, you know, an example. He's a senior designer in D&D. Fantastic he guy. He was yeah. part of that. Yeah, and a fantastic guy. He was part of that program. Um, mm. uh, Mario Tegon was part of that program, too. Um, Nell Raban, who is in video games now, she moved from, um, you know, from being a programmer. She's now a narrative designer in video games as part of that program, so on and so forth. There's there's a number of people. I don't know if they don't want me to name who they are, but a lot of them went through the program. Um, and I worked with many people from Jeremy Crawford to Chris Perkins, Wes Snyder, Amanda Hammond, um, Patrick Weeks over at Bioware, Karen Weeks over at Bioware, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and they've been really, really wonderful about giving their time. We, Whitney and I, we don't run a nonprofit, so we can't take donations. But we try to pay the the, the trainers so a little bit of money, mm-hmm. very modest. And a lot of them refuse or say just donate in our name. Sure. But we, we try to make this a very vigorous and orchestrated program. Um, but our eye is to get people of color into jobs um, that allow them sustainability and income and the ability to contribute robustly to the companies that they're in and, and, you know, add their voice to, to games. That's fantastic. I, I love it. Uh, love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, it is, it is so good for the industry to have actual avenues by which people who typically have no doors available to them, that there's suddenly that avenue there. And, and the, 
the opportunities are just fantastic. Like I, I know Mario Ortegon, who you mentioned, and he's been on the show uh, when he first was uh, for, uh, writing for Arcadia. But before that, uh, he and I were talking about some project that, that we never really did, but, but he, he sent me something. And it was so good. And, and a lot of times I work with new people and, and, you know, their things will be fine, right? And this was just, I was like, this could yeah. be in a Wizards of the Coast book today. Yeah. And, and I told him that he's like, no, I'm like, no, it's, it's this is so good. Like, you, you need, we need to get you yeah. to everybody because, yeah. and, and, and really almost any time someone asks me for, for someone that could work on something, uh, I will name him because his work is just that good. And it always makes me think how many people out there don't have any clear paths, right? I mean, you're living in Mexico, you're, you're, you know, you're, you've got your particular circle, but as you said, a lot of hires, they all come from people who know each other right. and, or who see each other at the conventions year after year. And, and, and that can be for freelance work and be for permanent hires. doesn't matter. It tends to be that sort of word of mouth circles that you're in. And so, you know, how do we, how do we increase that as we want this global diversity and we want to speak to all these different cultures? So I, I love that you're doing this. Um, and I think it's something that, that a lot of us of color would like to find a way to, to, to do things and change things. So that's fantastic that you've found a way to do it. And, and, and fantastic to me that Wizards and, and BioWare are, are interested in that. that that's really, that's great. Well, it, it was the individuals at it, right? I haven't been dealing on the corporate level. I think okay. one of the one of the things that's been really interesting is that, like, um, because of my work at Shanti Bhavan, it's afforded me a certain level of, like, trust with other professionals and games. And, and because people have dealt with me and know, with, know me, um, they know I'm straightforward and they can deal with me and I'm professional and I have high standards, too. Like, uh, those who are in the program, it, it's a privilege to be working with some of these top-level designers who are going to give their free time and their spare time to work with them in one-on-one um, kind of lessons um, to get them to the next level. And um, so it's a lot of outreach between me and Whitney and our our contacts and circles. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. I do wish corporations kind of built out these systems themselves because um, this also even this this does end up chewing up a lot of our resources. It can be quite exhausting on us, um, yeah. both financially and and time wise. Um, and I think there's a road. I wish I could convince corporations to do this and have those kind of conversations. But for the moment, we're we're kind of the stopgap. We're we're filling a space that needs to be filled. Um, the other area where we're doing this is um, we did this in Big Bad Con 2019, and, and I kind of did the math. Um, there's a, there's a Big Bad Con is a Bay Area con. And it's really been um, focused on trying to get um, an equitable amount of like women, people of color, uh, the LGBTQ community there. Really, really amazing, uh, you know, con that's done great for itself. A thousand people, but less. Uh, in 2019, we ran um, a scholarship that like a ton of people of color were able to come and attend to the con for the first time. We did a POC dinner, which was really wonderful for bonding. But then we did a POC meet and greet, which was a bunch of up-and-coming writers, designers, artists, influencers, so on and so forth, and then a bunch of people who could potentially hire them or mentor them. Um, and we designed it in a very specific way where it's like you walked in there and you had a card based off your survey because you filled out a survey in advance, and there was like a list of five people that we recommended you meet and vice, and vice versa. So even the, the, the potential mentees or hires were able to do that too. Hmm. I would say one half of everybody that worked on Journey to the Rain Citadel were either present at the meet and greet or 
uh, or recommended somebody that ended up, uh, they, were, they were present, they recommended somebody that ended up on the book. And that was another way of building out, um, you know, uh, connections and relationships uh, professionally so that people could get jobs. Uh, the meet and greet was incredibly effective. We're planning on doing it again for 2022 um, and urge uh, people of color to come and attend it. Um, and employers, potential employers or people who want to mentor to come and attend as well. But um, it was it was really successful. It was really nice to see. And I, I know a lot of people got permanent jobs out of it uh, for, for a lot of companies. Uh, others got contract jobs. Others got freelance jobs. A bunch of people got work that kind of sustained them for the pandemic. It was so outsized. And wow. it was it was very interesting in that I, I won't name who the person is, but it's somebody that's very prominent in the industry, um, well regarded. He came to me afterwards and said the the POC meet greet made him confront systemic racism in a way that he had never done it before. Um, and the reason why he said is that you know he said my circle of friends are mostly white, sure, and I had hired for most of my career mostly white people. And sitting in that room where it's mostly black and brown people, I realized I had missed all of these people my entire career. And that was not a malice. That was not of like, you know, not caring. I just, it just didn't, didn't occur to me to go past my, my normal immediate social circles. And yet right there in front of my face were all of these talented people that were until this moment, um, not, not somebody that I would have interacted with on a daily basis, but now that you put them in front of me, I want to hire a bunch of them. And this person did, um, so it, it served a lot of purposes, but um, that was another initiative that we took. All of these things are in support of each other. That's fantastic. And, and we, we, we haven't said it, I think, out loud here, though, though it's been in, in a lot of media, that Radiant Citadel used all writers of color, all black, yeah. all brown, uh, which is awesome. And that's never been done before. Um, and, and that's... Um, really great. I, I think a lot of folks like, like, I mean, I constantly think, okay, how can I help? How can I make things change? And so like I signed up with a tabletop mentoring group and I said, you know, I want to work with people who are people of color. And I guess, I don't know if it none applied or someone else took that up, but I, you know, I helped a white person, uh, with, which was <laughs> great. You know I mean? I enjoy mentoring anyway, so it's fine. But, yeah. but, uh, I think, you know, what advice would you give to people who say, I want to be part of active change? How how did you come up with this idea? How how did you make it make an how how did you put yourself into a place where you could effectively bring change? It, it came from my nonprofit work. You know, I, I think about these questions strategically all the time from Sean Duvalin, and I had a lot of failures. Right, you got to fail. I think one. If I were to give some piece of advice to to, to any person listening, is people often want to do good, and they're First, they want to do good, uh, but the difference between wanting to do good and taking action is, is a bit jump, right? And so you're going to be like, I want to do good, and then you're going to set a deadline. I'm going to do good by this date. I'm going to take action by this day, and then you should set yourself another deadline. I will take, I will, I will endure three failures, or I will endure ten failures before I give up, because you're going to fail the first few times out, um, and I did too. I, I, there were there were just mismatches in, in the, some of the early choices, and ended up wasting a lot of time and resources by people who were, you know, decent people, but um, didn't want to put in the work or didn't want to put the effort or, or, or were not in a place in their life to, to utilize it. Um, they were enthusiastic, but, you know, just wasn't able to put it together. And it would have been easy to give up at that point. Uh, but I did. I kept that up. So I think if you can endure the failures and you can translate, um, you know, hope into action, uh, those are the first you, you've ever come to hurdles. 
Then the third is to like look around you and try to find, identify other, uh, you know, if you're going to work with people of color, for instance, other people of color who might be leaders in the industry and just ask them what they're doing. Um, now I have, you know, uh, a circle of other, you know, people of color that I, I go out to is like, hey, who do you recommend right now that I keep an eye on as an up and coming? And they're like, oh, this person, this person, this person. I'm like, great. Maybe when, you know, one of my trainers is, is free, I can hook up this person with this person. And I always do the first vetting call. I always kind of check them out and I, I look at the work that they have and make sure that they're serious. I kind of give them, read them the riot act about like, Hey, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, like you gotta be serious about this because this is a lot of people's time and energy, right? Yeah. So um, I've gotten better at the process, but it's taken a bit of time. Um, yeah. Well, and your your addressing failure speaks to me because one of the things that I think a lot of us uh, think about it is, oh my god, I don't want to fail and like let my people down, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, yeah. But you know, like I ran an organized play program, um, and I pulled from people I knew. It was one of those things, very little time, uh, got to get the stuff done. And I would pick people that I thought had all the capability to deliver on this. And I would say about half of the people were able to deliver. And these were largely, you know, American, Canadian, European, mostly white people, um, mostly male, uh, because they're just people I knew in the hobby at that time, you know, back 10 years ago, whenever this was. And so as you know, that failure rate was, was shockingly high to me. And I've since heard from a lot of other people who run companies that the failure rate can be really high. And so I think we have to be okay with that. When we involve POCs, we're also going to have that failure rate. That's just the way it goes in this industry. A lot of people may have one level of experience, but not another. Uh, they may be prepared for one level of effort, not another. And then that failure is just going to happen. And we have to be okay with it kind of regardless of, of the color of the person that's doing the failing. Uh, and everybody learns the failure is not final, right? You move on from that to the next thing you want to do. Yeah, I think it's, an, the, the, yeah, the, the failure is not final. Um, it's also important to recognize that somebody that failed five years ago may not fail today. I sometimes see in the tabletop industry this sort of motto that you're only as good as your last piece of work, right? Um, you've probably heard that, that phrase. Um, I certainly have. And this assumption that if you hand in something that's subpar, you'll never be trusted again, you know, mm -hmm. by, by X company or X person to do it again. I think there's a really problematic and very challenging way of looking at it. Um, I, had you met me in my early twenties, I would have been a hot mess. Uh, just <laughs> totally, totally all over the place. Completely chaotic. <laughs> And it's such a different personality than myself now, where I run an international nonprofit, um, manage tons of people, and then managed um, 22-plus team of uh, freelancers for books simultaneously while doing my full-time job, right? I, I, was, I was juggling so much during this period of time where this book was being built. Uh, it was kind of absurd, actually. I was so tired all the time. But um, I'm just a very different person, right? You know, experiences life multiple things have changed me over that. Um, and if I fail in the next project down the road, that there's for multiple reasons why that might happen. Um, I, I think we need to be always to reassess um, and to be open-minded about somebody who may have failed if uh, you understand why they failed, like right, or understand where that failure came from um, and have the open mind to have frank conversations with the person who failed and be like, hey, what happened here? Just be really straightforward with me and walk me through and, and tell me how you can, you know, deliver the next time around. But you're right. People of color, particularly, uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of marginalized groups are usually facing 
uh, extraordinarily different challenges. Um, and there's a lot of, it's sort of like me when I told you for, for my teen years and my twenties, I didn't think I was the person supposed to be writing these things. Right. So we were kind of battling this internal uh, fear or, you know, the imposter syndrome for some reason always uh, is a strange uh, phrase for me, but I guess uh, an imposter syndrome or this is this sense that like, I don't belong or the sense of like, I'm not the person supposed to be doing this. Um, and that is a certain self form of self-sabotage. Um, so we need to, we need to identify that. You know, when I was managing the freelancers for the writing, um, I think a project lead needs to be partially, especially in a long-term project that's complex, partially a psychologist. <laughs> you really need to understand not just your vision or, or, or where you're going or your goals, but you need to understand the people that are doing it and why, where are their fears, where are their self-doubts, um, where, where is their morale flagging, um, what are their tendencies? Is so-and-so always going to habitually send in something late by a week, right? I, I had a record. I was really proud of, like, not enough. And you've run projects. So you know what I say when I say that nobody handed it late by, like, more than 12 hours or 24 hours. I was very particular about it. But I'd wow. say it was lovely. Um, yeah. Would habitually hand in. She was the one person who habitually handed in things one week late. Um, she's, a, she's a rock star who's juggling a ton of things, including kids. And I was just like, oh, here's what's going on with her. I understand that. I'll just move up her schedule by a week <laughs> to get her to tell her that her due date is this so yeah. that I'll actually get it by the date. Because I think it was a psychological barrier while she was working on these things. Right? Um, super hard you parenting. Yep, I get yeah, it. Yeah, you'd understand. You're, you're parenting. You get a lot of things, right? So you need to understand your people and what makes them tick um, and how you can support their success. Oh, say that again. You, you got a little quiet there. Sorry, I, I said you've you got to understand uh, your people and what yeah. makes them tick and That's how great. you can support their success. I love that compassionate view for uh, for RPG project management and RPG companies. And I, I agree with you. I've heard a lot about companies having blacklists um, and, and even really great people will be said, oh, so-and-so is on their on their not list. Um, and... And and the the that reputation thing is is it's a difficult thing when it's such a small industry. Um, so I want to talk to you forever, but I can't. Um, so let me ask a final question before we close, which is: Where do you see us? Where should we go from here uh, as an industry? Uh, and and where do you personally want to go from here? Yeah, I, I think you know. When I proposed this to, to Jeremy and Wes, and we started getting into the, to the weeds of it and talking about it, Jeremy said something to me along the lines that he thought this book was not the end of things, but this was the beginning of things. The journey to the Radiant Citadel was the first uh, of something to come. I hope that is true. Yeah, um, I believe that is true. Um, I think it's important that it is true. Um, and that is what I want most for the industry. I, I know... I mean, D&D is at all-time high in terms of its playability. I know everybody's looking at it, regardless of whether they play it or not, they're at least looking at what D&D is making. I know a lot of people in the video games industry that are also looking at what D&D makes. I know people, in, obviously, in film and, and, and TV are also looking. A lot of them came up playing D&D. My hope is that Journeys to the Radiant Citadel is this seminal moment in, in media, in larger media, that changes mindsets and goes, 
we can do, because I, I emphasize that like there was an all POC team of writers. Our, our art director was a, a woman of color. Our uh, marketing manager was a woman of color. Like it went on every level, right? It's, it's yeah. leadership of POCs. I emphasize that to say you can turn over a project of this magnitude and importance to a POC team and they will deliver on a high, um, on a high level with the top caliber and they will create stories and ideas and uh, worlds that, you know, you just didn't imagine would not have been possible by an all white team, just could not have been done by an all white team. And it will be vibrant and beautiful and, and evocative for it. And so my hope is this book is a game changer. This is, this is, this is, there will be a, before Journeys of the Rain Incident and, and after Journeys of the Rain Incident. Awesome. I, I fervently believe that. And that's why I did this. Um, you know, I, I love games, but I'm not a full-time games professional. Every once in a while, I hesitate calling myself a games professional. Like, sure. Am I really a games professional? I guess I am. I, <laughs> I think you are. I, I, get, I, I get paid to do this. Yes. It's just not my career, right? It, it's it's yeah. not where I put my, my all my time into. Sure. But... Um, if I'm going to do what it, what you're if saying I'm is do... you've dual classed or multi classed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've definitely multi classed for sure. Uh, if, if I'm going to do this thing, right, um, and my time is precious and I don't have a lot of it to spare, it has to have great meaning to me personally. And it has to have, I think, meaning to what I want to see the world be like. And, and, then, and this book speaks to both. It has it says a lot to me creative, creatively that I really enjoy and I love. Um, it also hits a lot of personal goals, and it and it does reflect a larger world. I hope we can shape together. Oh, I love it. That's great. Well, I'm excited to see what comes next, uh, what you maybe even are already working on or going to, and what your wife is working on because I think that's <laughs> that news has to come out soon. So I'm excited. Uh, one of you don't have to say anything. You can stay totally quiet here. But but one of my on the previous show that we recorded that comes out this week, one of my. Um, um, what do you call it? One of my guesses was that uh, that will get announced at D&D Direct, but if not, hopefully it's soon. So thank you, uh, Ajit. Thank you to all of our listeners, all of our patrons. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP. You support all of the network uh, podcasts. Um, Ajit, where can people find you on social media or otherwise follow wor- your work? Sure. Um, I think probably Twitter is the easiest way to follow me. And that would be Ajit George SB on Twitter. Excellent. Um, so you can find me on, web, on the web at alphastream.org, on Twitter at alphastream. And our podcast, you can follow on Twitter at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark pr- production. So, hey, Ajit, what are we going to do now? Uh- <laughs> What are we going to do now? Uh, uh, well, it was for pleasure. Oh, we're going <laughs> to... What do you think? Did, should we... Well, let me ask you this question. How are we going to save Sean from the ethereal plane? I think we need to go kill some base fighters right now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Faz. <laughs>